0: Om Vasudevaya Om Om So today, it's something we take for granted, actually, usually, is that we we just presume because we're here, that the world is here and we're here, and so it just makes sense to us that it, it should exist. But when you get into into philosophy, we'll find out a little bit later on, it's kind of a problematic situation. Why does the world at least? How, why does the world exist as it as it does? And so we're going to start with uh, we're going to come from a particular angle. We're going to look at uh, Bhagavad Gita twelve one, where where uh, Arjuna asks Krishna a question about uh, whom he should worship or what he should worship, and it's um, it says Arjuna inquired, which are considered to be more perfect those who are always properly engaged in your devotional service or those who worship the impersonal Brahman the unmanifested and then if you look at the the word for word there's there's a it says uh, the word is of yakta and Aksharam beyond the senses and the unmanifested and uh, and Krishna has explained himself in different ways so far in the Bhagavad Gita. And so he's he's there in his personal form, sitting on standing on the chariot with, with Arjuna speaking to him. At the same time he's mentioned previously that he has other features. He's present in different ways in, in Bhagavad Gita seven seven he says, O conqueror of wealth, there is no truth superior to me. Everything rests upon me as pearls are strung on a thread. So he's something that's holding all existence together. And you don't see him. He's, not, he, he's sitting on the chariot. You don't see everything sitting on his shoulders. He's, just, he's quite free to move about and do what he wants. And then he says in four by me, and then he explains that a little bit better, by, my, by, by me in my unmanifested form of yakta murtina, this entire universe is pervaded. All beings are in me, but I am not in them. So there's this this feature of the supreme, right? That's all pervading, and is acting like a, you know, like so like, you, like uh, the thread that connects pearls or, or, or objects in a necklace. That it holds it together in some way. So everywhere and holding it together. Right? That's what he's saying. So he says I'm there. So he identifies himself with that, and then. Uh, uh, in the purport to the twelve, one that we're discussing today, Prabhupada says, Generally the transcendentalists can be divided into two classes. One is the impersonalist and the other is the personalist. The personalist devotee engages himself with all energy in the service of the Supreme Lord. The impersonalist also engages himself, not directly in the service of Krishna, but in meditation on the impersonal Brahman the unmanifested. So Arjuna, he, as Sri Prabhupada says, he has his own preference already. He wants to worship the personal form, that's who, to whom he's attached to, but he's, he's asking the question, because right, you've explained yourself in these different ways. What is the, the best object? Which is the one who's best engaged in yoga, yoga vittama? Which, which one is the most, is, is, is understanding the, the best? And then Prabhupada goes on in the purport, and he says, Those who worship the Supreme Lord directly by devotional service are called impersonalists. Those who engage themselves in meditation on the impersonal Brahman are called impersonalists. The devotional service are personalists, and those who worship the impersonal Brahman impersonalists. Arjuna is here questioning which position is better And then Krishna actually, he, he settles the question pretty clearly in Bhagavad Gita, he, very definitively, here and then also in other places. So the, the, the facts are quite clear. Um, he, he answers them in the very next verse. He says, the Supreme Personality of Godhead said, those who fix their minds on my personal form and are always engaged in worshipping me with great and transcendental faith are considered by me to be the most perfect. So, and then, in different places, he's confirmed the same thing. Because the, the, the real question when, when, you, when you deal with that, which one you should worship, the, re, the underlying question is, which's superior? What's more fundamental to reality? If you're going to worship the highest thing, you're going to worship the thing that's most fundamental. And so m- people will think, oftentimes, that something that's all-pervading it's existing everywhere and supporting all existence, in some way seems more fundamental, seems deeper, more cosmic, than this person who's sitting on the chariot, or standing on the chariot and speaking from one location. In fact, they'll presume that, this is, that if things are manifesting from the unmanifested, this form is also one of the things being manifested. And so usually, when people just rely upon their own uh, logic and, 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 and understanding, that that seems to be more cosmic. Krishna is here, but he doesn't seem to be someplace else. He seems to be localized. He's you know a particular. He's particular in so many different ways, and there's so many other beings. Right? So it seems like the thing that pervades everything would be the, the higher, and most more powerful and most worshipable item. And, uh, but, but Krishna, he, he addresses that issue in Bhagavad Gita. In nine nine five he says, Yet everything that is created does not rest in me. Behold my mystic opulence. Although I am the maintainer of all living entities, and although I am everywhere, I am not part of this cosmic manifestation, for myself is the very source of creation." And so he's he's already mentioning here he's he's, he's giving the notion that uh, you know, he said everything he, before he said by his impersonal avakta you know he's like the he he's pervading everything and maintaining it but here he says but it's not in me I'm free like you see he's standing on the chariot he doesn't have the weight of all the worlds on his shoulders he's not maintaining it he's able to be also apart from it and be himself. And he says, and he, and he says that, that that self, my own self, is the source of everything. That's what he says. So he's indicating that, that the personal form actually is higher. By beginning to indicate that in this verse, he makes it even more clear later on. In 1427, he says, I am the basis of the impersonal Brahman. Me. Yeah. Which is immortal, imperishable, and eternal, and is the constitutional position of ultimate happiness. So he claims himself to be the source of that, of Yaktamurtina. It's his. He's not its, but it's his. He's the source of that. So he's claiming himself to be higher. And then in 9.11 he says, Fools deride me when I descend in the human form. They do not know my transcendental nature as the supreme lord of all that be. So again, they think less of him because there he is in a, in a form. But he says, that, 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 that's foolish. And then in 724, he says, Unintelligent men who do not know me perfectly think that I, the Supreme Personality of Godhead Krishna, was impersonal, and the word here is avyaktam, again, beyond, the, not manifested, that I, the Supreme Personality of Godhead Krishna, was impersonal before and have now assumed this personality. Due to their small knowledge, they do not know my higher nature, which is imperishable and supreme. So he he's he's made it very clear, who, who which, which is higher and what is more worshipable, and he, and he gives the straight facts on that. He really settles the question quite clearly in Bhagavad Gita. So in that regard, we could say stop here; the case is closed. Krishna has has told us what the facts are. Um, but there's a, I think there's something interesting. And if we look, if we look at it also from a philosophical standpoint, because um, you know, a philosophy, uh, one of the, if you have a philosophical explanation for something, or an understanding of something, one of the criteria for whether it's it's a high quality understanding or explanation is how complete it is. Does it does it explain all the different facts? Does it is it does it apply in all circumstances? And if we look at the, at, at the uh, uh, particularly, if we look at the impersonal, and I would say anything besides the bhakti tradition, and you look, you look at their explanation of reality, there's a really big hole in trying to explain why and how the world exists and us in it in the way that it does. So I thought that was, it might be interesting to explore that a little bit, even though Krishna has, has given us the answer we can also look at it from a philosophical angle and solve a question that people oftentimes have. Why, 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 why am I existing in a world where there's you know, lots of suffering and, and lack of satisfaction? So, and you, you'll see that the impersonalists, they just can't do it. They really struggle with this to find a cogent or coherent account of why the world we live in exists. It's really a difficult, a huge difficulty for them. And we'll look at kind of three kind of flavors of impersonalism that are, there's many different sub-flavors, but there's three kind of major ones. And we'll we'll start out with, we'll look a little quickly at Shankaracharya, who was the founder of Advaita Vedanta, and, and Prabhupada's pranam mantra you know, he's nerva shunyavadi he was trying to he was trying to argue against uh nerva this this notion that the supreme has no uh, varieties or no distinctions and uh, and so he was he was particularly wanting to address that and there, there's plotinus who was uh, he was uh, kind of the founder of western impersonalism he influenced Western Christianity. He wasn't a Christian. He was actually a, a pagan. But uh, but he, his influence seeped into, into Christianity. And he's a very he's very closely related to Shankaracharya, but has a little bit of a difference. And then we have what we call these the, the Brahmavada, or the Brahmavadis, Prabhupada usually calls them. Those who want to merge into the impersonal Brahman effulgence, merging into the light. So those are you know, also fairly common. And there's also, people have a certain mystical experience, uh, with that. Also with the, with the, uh, the and, and the Plotinus ones, there's a, there's a mystical experience that makes them feel that that's the, uh, that that's the, 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 truth. It's not simply a philosophical one, but there's a, a, uh, a mystical experience that they have that makes them think in that way. And, uh, Shankaracharya is very rigorous. And, uh. And so he's, he's kind, of, I'll, I'll kind of three major elements of his understanding is that, that, the, that the, the absolute is nervous shesha. Prabhupada says no varieties. Also, like no distinguishing features is another way to look at it. It's, an, it's, it's synonymous with, with, uh, with upadhi, Prabhupada, which Prabhupada calls, causes designations. So if something is, so he's he's thinking that the absolute has to be a complete unity. And so if there's varieties in it, if there's aspects to it, then in some way there's there's a lack of complete unity, and that's an imperfection in his in his view. If it's made up of qualities or has variations, then then it can't be the supreme. The supreme, the source of everything, can't have. Can't have specific qualities, because that's what comes out of the source. <laughs> is, is how they think about. It. So absolute perfection just kind of has to be it's like an absolute potentiality or a full completeness, so it has to include everything. And, and they think of it as homogeneous and, and, uh, and, and just uh, a complete unity and then according to the their statements in the Upanishads it says it's changeless because it can't have any it can't be changing cuz then it seems to lack perfection right perfection would just be it'd be perfect once you reach perfection what do you do from there so why would it change and also it's the only thing that exists one without a second and so that puts him into a really really difficult situation when he, when he makes those things. He did it for a reason. He was trying to restore the Vedas, actually. But, but he puts him in a very, very difficult situation with regard to, to the world. And, uh, and Prabhupada mentions this in his uh, purport to, uh, to uh, chapter 2, text 13. He says, The Mayavadi theory of oneness of the spirit soul cannot be entertained on the ground that the spirit soul cannot be cut into pieces as a fragmental portion. Such cutting into different individual souls would make the supreme cleavable or changeable, against the principle of the souls being unchangeable. So, we experience, here we are, we have individual souls. But according to Shankaracharya's teaching, that would be a change in the one, if you have little pieces that come out. So Prabhupada says that that violates the principle of changelessness, uh, according to his own philosophy. And uh, really, according to to these principles of changelessness and being one, the changelessness... uh, is violated by that and uh, and just the fact of there being a world if there's emanations from, from 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 the one then there's two things instead of one you have the one and you have the emanations and so that, that also causes a problem for Shankaracharya but, but the problem is here we are there can't be souls and there can't be emanations there can't be a world but here we sit and he's telling... <laughs> And he's telling us right, that we have to do something in order to experience oneness. Right? So it's a very, a very, very difficult uh, situation. He, he, he mentions also in his commentary on Vedanta Sutra, right, there's, you know, that everything is, is manifesting from, from the Supreme. And he takes issue with that, because he says that they, the, the one can't emanate anything that would make him one, would violate the one without a second principle and also to change this principle. First first of all, there's nothing, and then there's something. And so he has to come up with a very, very convoluted solution to trying to explain why. You know, he's here talking to us who are here in this world, and he's trying to tell us how to get out of it. But by his teaching, it shouldn't, and we shouldn't even exist. It's an issue. And so, what, what he tells us is that the world is an illusion, and what he, he calls it an illusory superimposition. doesn't have any real realities. And he uses the analogy, you hear this a lot amongst the impersonal philosophers, that it's, it's like when somebody sees a rope and they think they see a snake. There's no snake there, right? there's only a rope. And so the, the, the seeing of the snake is an illusion. Right. So in that sense, he says, oh, you know, nothing has to be emanated. There right. doesn't have to be a separate reality. There's an illusion. Now, there's at least three real difficulties with that explanation. Like First of all, if you're there and you see a rope and you mistake it for a snake, first of all, you have to be there. Somebody has to be there to have that illusion. There's only supposed to be the one existing. Right. Then the item that you mistake for something else has to resemble it. You don't mistake a rock for a snake. You mistake, you know, a, 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 a snake for a rope because they resemble each other. And the one which is nervashesha doesn't at all resemble the world which is filled with varieties and upadis and distinctive features and thirdly you have to have perceived a snake before (laughs) if you've never seen a snake you'll never look at a rope and think it was a snake so there had to be a real snake someplace yeah you have to to see oh I've seen that before And therefore, you make a mistake, and you have to be there. Has to be somebody there. And in any case, even illusion has reality. Even an illusion is, you know, my illusion of the snake. The snake isn't real, but my misperception is a reality. I there, I perceived it. It's an actual perception. It has a certain reality. You can't, and that would also violate his principles. So, the way he gets around the fact that the, that that the one is changeless and one without the second is that that the world doesn 't really exist, and we don 't really exist, but he 's left with the problem here we are, and the solution isn't very isn't very satisfactory and then Plotinus is a little less rigorous in his description he doesn't he he um he was seemingly influenced by the East. He, apparently, he wanted to go to India very badly, and there's and some people think that his teacher, who's only, his, only his name is known, they don't know anything about it, may have been also from India. And so he was clearly influenced by by the, uh, the Shankaracharya's teachings, but he wasn't as rigorous. He didn't um, he he was Nirvachaya he thought that the, that the, the one had, you know, had had a similar idea of, of being without any variety, without any distinguishing characteristics, without any upadis, you know, any any designations. Because that would make it somehow manifest and limited. It had to be completely put potential. But he didn't make that um, uh, changeless, well, changeless also, but not one without a second wasn't uh, wasn't uh, part of his requirement. So he could believe in a real world, but again he had very little explanation for it. He just said that somehow the One is so complete that it overflows. And the One has no connection with it, not controlling it, not interested in it, but somehow it overflows and here we are, just spontaneously because it's like so complete that it can't help but overflow and make something but it, not intentionally not with any pur- any purpose but just overflows and here we are and then we have to try to deal with it so again you know basically it's a, it's a it's basically a question mark still you know why there's no reason why you know, if the whole is complete and perfect you know why spill over, why do anything? It's just somehow it does. And there's no, no explanation for it, really. And then the, the third type of, of uh, impersonalists, the, the Brahma bodies, they don't even address the, the situation at all, as far as I can tell. That They just, they just presume that there's a world, because we are living here. And, and you know, that, that Brahman is there everywhere. It's, it's emanating in the world. They accept that that it emanates from, from Brahman. They don't have the same problem with the one without a second, or that it has to be changeless. You know, they, they, get, they don't worry about that. But that Brahman, this, this, you know, the, the divine light, you know, emanates everything else and supports it, including us. You know, and but why would it do that? What's the point in doing it? Right? You're creating a world, the purpose of which is simply to escape from. If it's if it's if it's this wonderful perfect entity or thing, why emanate anything at all? Why not just remain perfect? Why emanate something of a lower quality? Because it's lower quality. Everybody agrees that. the Our idea is to escape our attachments to this world and to return to the Brahman. Somehow we've come out of it, little pieces of it have come out, and we're going to go back into it for eternal happiness. So why come out? Who has any reason to, to, to do it? Why would, why would the Brahman make little pieces? Why would they come out? Why is the world here? And as far as I've ever been able to see, there's no one that addresses that issue. Just, we presume, okay, it's here, this is what it is. But it, it leaves a really big hole in that situation. I would even say um, this, this extends to uh, many other theological systems, where there's whether an absence of, of, of Krishna Bhakti, or of the notion of Bhakti. That uh, you know, even if you have this all-powerful creator, that creates this world and little tiny beings in it. Why? We kind of imagine, you know, we kind of extrapolate onto God oftentimes and think that you. Know, that we like to have people. We like to feel great, and we'd like to feel great in terms of, you know, smaller people who will do our bidding. You know, but if you're powerful enough to create a world, see, we're not powerful enough to create a world. We're small. And so for us, being able to control other beings is a, is a real validation of our value and our worth. If we're you know, higher above people and we you know, can, can command them and control them and, and, and have their attention and adoration and cooperation, that puts us apart from others. It's a, it's a distinction that matters to us. But what about somebody who's so powerful as to create everything? If you create like a you know a little you know a little virtual world a little computer program with people in it you know, and they worship you, does it make you feel anything? You know, you can you create them as you wish. You do with them as they as you wish. You could make another one if you want. You know, what's how, how does that validate you? You already are apart from everything else. You already are validated above anything else you've created. What's the reason? You know. And to reward and punish them if they if they behave, you know, or just hey, why? What's the reason for that? You know, obviously somebody so powerful must have a better life than that. That can't be a very significant part of their existence. Why would they need to do that? You know, so again, and that's not usually addressed. It just it it, it, it we just, just stated as a fact. You know, either Brahman or the creator creates this thing. Why? What's the what's the what's the meaning of it? What's the purpose of it? Hmm? And so in, 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 in Krishna Bhakti that is that's addressed. That you have you have uh, and there's really two two big issues there that divine love is greater than oneness and that love requires freedom. So first of all, you, you have Krishna, the Lord, who is perfect and complete. He is the source of all other manifestations. He mentions that very clearly. He says, I'm the source. My very self is the source of creation. And he's complete. He doesn't require anything. So there's full self-satisfaction and joy in existence. But the divine also is very intelligent, and it's understood that there's something that's greater than full self-satisfaction. Self-satisfaction is less than love. There's something that's higher than even full, overflowing satisfaction, because it's again it's self-based. The powerful thing that causes a greater type and this means real love. What we experience here in this world is is, 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 is love with a, usually a tremendous admixture of desire. that I love something in somebody else because that will bring me happiness and satisfy my emptiness. That's desire. You know the. Uh, uh, there's the my spiritual master likes to quote. He says it's a Russian proverb. He was told anyway that the fox loves the chicken all the way down to the tail feathers. Right. So the so the the you know the, the 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 fox is simply a a means to our own satisfaction. I mean the chicken is for the fox it's simply a means. The, the welfare of the chicken not considered. All right. And so, so love means that you see a value in the other. A value even ultimately so great that you're willing to sacrifice your own pleasure for their happiness. In 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 this in in the you know our regular world sometimes we say we love somebody enough to let them go. Yeah. Whereas you may love somebody if you, and if it's mostly desire, you do not want to let them go. Even if they're unhappy, perhaps you would prefer to keep them for your happiness. But if, you, if someone really sees the value in others, and you want them to be happy and succeed, you would want that, if you, if, even, if it's, even if you can't share in that happiness, you would want that for them. So that shows that the value is with the other. Not with your own happiness, and that brings you a kind of happiness because of the you see the other as independently valuable. So this kind of love awakens a kind of joy that's much greater. It's like it's like a, the self satisfaction overflowing and morphing into something more powerful. And so that's why the, 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 the Upanishads, they say that the, the one became many for bliss, for, for its own bliss. And so for love, you need a multiplicity. You need at least two. You have to, you have, to have someone to love and someone to be loved. and you know, each, each side actually needs to have both of those things in order for love to be there. The you know, just satisfaction. This requires a one, but love requires two. So there is an impetus to have a multiplicity, and smaller beings. There is a use in that as well, because there is this great potential. So Krishna is, I guess, the one argument you can you can say against the fact that any. Particular manifestation is uh, less than just plain pure potential. Is, is that you can say that still, even if there's unlimited potential, there has to be one manifestation that would be the best. And if there's no manifestations, Prabhupada uses this argument. He, he, he says if the if the if if the the, the highest thing can't actually manifest and and act while other things can that's a limitation so I guess I would would make the argument that if, if somebody is a great artist or a great musician but they never produce any art or they never produce any music that's value wasted and almost everybody they will have one master work that expresses the highest capacity of their creativity so that's Krishna. Krishna is, he has unlimited potential. And his form is the expression of his full potential, the masterwork of, of whatever, of possibility. So that has greater value than just any, even the unlimited potential, because it's the, it's the, you know, the, the perfection of, of all things and so and nothing else, nothing else will compare it to him in that way but even though he's so wonderful he's unable to appreciate it there's <laughs> there's a there's, a, there's a, a story in the lalita Madhava where he sees his reflection in the, in the kind of the crystal crystalline part of a cave and he sees wow <laughs> <laughs> so beautiful. And he's attracted. But how can you be attracted to yourself? It doesn't work, you know? And so so the, the, the other creations he has, the individual souls, they have the ability to see Krishna and to interact with him. They get a chance to have that advantage. And the difference between greatness and smallness means that their that, that their attraction is incredibly great and the love that comes out of it incredibly strong and intense and rarefied. Which in turn touches Krishna's heart. Srila Prabhupada likes to you know, he mentions sometimes that when, when children little children will bring you know very bad drawings home from school or something and give them to their parents <laughs> You know the kid's not going never going to be a great artist. Isn't now and never going to be. There's not even some potential there, and gives it to them. The parents are very happy. They'll put it up, you know, display it. Oh, my child gave me something. Because the intention was to please them. That was what was what was uh, touching to the parents. I've read this this other, there's a Catholic monk who who uses the example, he said that sometimes children bring flowers to their parents. And he goes even further, he says the the parents first made the child, (laughs) and and second of all, probably the the, the, the children used the parents' money (laughs) to buy the flowers. And thirdly, probably the parents could buy better flowers (laughs) if they were depicting themselves. (laughs) But when the child does it, oh melts their heart. Mm-hmm. Because there's a certain purity in their, in their gift. Mm-hmm. And so the, 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 this, this difference in, in status creates this very really powerful love on the part of, the, on the, part of the, the, the smaller beings which touches the Lord and makes him want to even come closer to them. Because mm-hmm. love at a distance also lacks a certain... You know, fullness. He wants to approach them and deal with that. But love is something that can't be uh, mandated. Like Krishna could create persons who love him, but that creates a situation like you know we have we have a kind of an analogous situation of people who are very rich and famous. They oftentimes have a lot of peeps or a posse or a lot of hangers on that, that surround them. And, and despite that, many people who are famous or rich or both, they feel very lonely because they feel that, that, that the love isn't genuine. They, they're wanted, they're adored for, because they're, people want to be connected with somebody rich, somebody famous, they're looking for some kind of benefit. Or, say, if if you were able to, you know, there was a real, such a thing as a love potion that you could give somebody and they would fall madly in love with you. It might be quite pleasant in the short term because maybe you don't have enough love, but you would know in your heart that you simply found a way to control their mind, that the love isn't genuine. So genuine love has to it can't be mandated, it has to be free. There has to be that opportunity to not do it. And so there's the ability for us to choose to try something different, that on one side, Krishna is adored by all. That on one side, everything is Krishna is adored by all, and we are one of the ones who are adoring him. Because the desire may come upon us that we would like that situation reversed. We would like to be the objects of love more than the, the 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 givers of love, although Krishna loves us already dearly. And so this world is a place for that. Where we go we we can come and we can be seemingly independent and we can try to carve out our little niche We can be somebody. And have other people, just like I said, as we do, we like to be to show ourselves to be better than others. We want to have other people appreciate us for different ways, even if we're not thinking of ourselves better. But we want to be adored in some way. That's a built deep into our psychology. We want to be adored. You know, flattery is is, is you know as I say, flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> people can flatter us and do it. You know that's built deep into our, into our psychology. And so Krishna has given us this place to do that. Um, you can still ask, then why didn't he give us a perfect place? Why are there so many you know, other sorts of issues here with this world? Uh, Prabhupada explains that the, that the evil in this world is our own creation. He uses the example, he says, the rain falls, in Bhagavad Gita, one of his purports, he says, the rain falls on the ground, and either crops or weeds can grow. And so he facilitates, he gives us the, 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 the rain and the field, and we decide whether we want to be crops or weeds. That's our decision. We bring that into the world. And and And, and, and secondly, um there's a certain there's a certain level of mercy there the 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 fact that we have to, we have to take many different we we can't be in any position eternally the idea is it's it's supposed to, that that krishna knows that there is nothing compared that could possibly compare he's already created in the spiritual world the best possible world what's well, best for him and best for others He's already done that. There's no way to surpass or equal that. Right? And so he, Prabhupada says he embeds certain perplexities into existence, such as the fact that, that we, we're, we're temporary, we, there's death, in order for us to question whether we're actually on the right path. Otherwise, we just presume this is all there is. And so that questioning then allows us to reconsider our choice and so out of out of his kindness he wants to he doesn't want to just give us over to this world forever he wants to give us a little is it, is it really working for you is this really what you were looking for and then he gives us the you know the, the solution and again we have to choose it freely so there's a there's a from the from the, the bhakti philosophy, there, there's a a, a a purpose and a meaning to this existence and our separate existence that I, I don't I, I haven't found a, a, as good an explanation, and so most times in many cases there's not either a, not an explanation at all or a very unsatisfying one, especially with the with the impersonalist ideas. So. We went over a little bit too much here, so if there's any comments or questions, we can deal with that. Thank you for your patience. Uh, weed is also the part of our ignorance. If we are ignorant about it, only then we can see this is a weed and this is a helpful to us or something, or we can remove the weed. Hmm. It may not be a weed, it can be used for some other medicine or for something, but we call it as a weed and we just throw it away. Yeah, that, that's true. I mean, but there you know there's there are things that are more useful and less useful, I guess. you know the the analogies are meant to be not to be perfect, <laughs> but just to convey a certain message, you know, so that that we can uh, I mean, we can make we can maybe even evil has its purpose, you know? That's all right too in a, in a larger sense, but uh, but uh, but but uh, you know in this case it's just said that that, that we have a choice. We can, we can cultivate goodness or we can cultivate evil. And that's, that's our business. Krishna doesn't embed these things into the, into the world. He gives us the facility to make our choices. We can, we can try to, be, to enjoy ourselves and to be happy here while considering others. Like the, the, the basic Vedic idea of a society is that there's a lot of gratitude, there's a lot of mutuality, there's a lot of cooperation. We, we see the value in other beings and other people. But when we become very, very selfish, we tend, we tend to, to try to exist even at the expense of others. All right? Krishna mentions in the, later in the Bhagavad Gita says that, that, that the, the, the asura mentality, the, the ungodly person thinks, you know, that I have acquired so much and later on I will acquire even more. I have killed my enemy and I will kill my other ones. And so there's a different sort of mentality. So when we start crossing the, the boundary where, we're, where our self-interest comes at the expense of others, that's when, that's when evil begins to come into the world. Our desires become so powerful that we feel that we need to do it at the expense of others. we get from oneness or feeling unity or feeling connected you know that sense of being one with Krishna and non-different from everybody and everything but that love is greater than that the feeling and the satisfaction we get for love but it seems to me love is also you know it's just full of pain and heartbreak and emotions and it's all over the place that's because of the desire aspect See when when, it, when it's desire, then it's painful. You see, because because I, I, this this now what my beloved has caused me happiness, but now maybe my beloved is not acting in the way that I wish them to act. They're leaving me. They're neglecting me, and so then I'm left with pain. Because when, what happens, you know, is is that we become accustomed to a certain level of happiness and we're dependent upon that, and it's coming externally. When that's removed, then there's pain. But love, that's simply the desire for the benefit of the other, that's not a selfish thing, is a different thing. That's real love. (coughs) The only pain then, even if there's separation, is that you're not able to do something for them. And that's that's a beautiful kind of pain see there's 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 painful pain and there's beautiful pain <laughs> and so so it's like that oh. yeah. 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 it's beautiful pain yeah. Yeah, because it, it's it's you 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 have found Someone that is of just ultimate value mm-hmm. and and just just by just by Krishna's existence we have reason for infinite gratitude and joy mm-hmm. and the pain comes that we want to would like to do something in return and we can never do enough that's a beautiful kind of pain mm-hmm. that's not a not a, not a, a, a the pain of loss and lacking but a, a pain of, of overflowing satisfaction and joy so, there's a, I had this um, this quote from Arthur Cussler uh, he was he was uh, in prison. I have it? He was in prison. Uh, he was uh, in, in what was guess in the mid 20th century, I think. He was in prison. He was a member of the, he was being purged. He was a member of the Communist Party, I think, in Czechoslovakia, and he was being purged. He was kept in prison, and he kept hearing people being taken out. In the middle of that, and being shot, and so he knew this was imminent for him, and so he was in this. He wasn't a spiritual person at all, or a religious person at all, but he was under this extreme pressure, and he had this experience, which is kind of typical of of the the kind of people that that, that will talk think about this oneness. And he says, he says, I was standing at the recessed window of cell number forty and with a piece of iron spring that I had extracted from the wire mattress with scratching mathematical formula on the wall. Mathematics, in particular analytical geometry, had been the favorite hobby of my youth, neglected later on for many years. I was trying to remember how to derive the formula of the hyperbola and was stumped. Then I tried the ellipse and parabola and, to my delight, succeeded. Next, I went on to recall Euclid's proof that, that the number of primes is infinite. Since I had become acquainted with Euclid's proof at school, it always filled me with deep satisfaction that was aesthetic rather than intellectual. Now as I recalled the method and scratched the symbols on the wall, I felt the same enchantment. And then, for the first time, I suddenly understood the reason for this enchantment. The scribbled symbols on the wall represented one of the rare cases where a meaningful and comprehensive statement about the infinite is arrived at by precise and finite means. The infinite is a mystical mass shrouded in a haze, and yet it was possible to gain some knowledge of it without losing oneself in ambiguities. The significance of this swept over me like a wave. The wave had originated in an articulate verbal insight, but this evaporated at once, leaving in its wake only a wordless essence, a fragrance of eternity, a quiver of the arrow in the blue. I must have stood there for some minutes entranced with a wordless awareness that this is perfect perfect, until I noticed some slight mental discomfort nagging at the back of my mind, some trivial circumstance that marred the perfection of the moment. Then I remembered the nature of that irrelevant annoyance. I was, of course, in prison and might be shot. But this was immediately answered by a feeling whose verbal translation would be, So what? Is that all? Have you got nothing more serious to worry about? An answer so spontaneous, fresh, and amused as if the intruding annoyance had been the loss of a collar stud. Little button. Then I was floating on on my back in a river of peace under bridges of silence. It came from nowhere and flowed nowhere. Then there was no river and no I. I had ceased to exist. When I say that I had ceased to exist, I refer to a concrete experience that is verbally as incommunicable as the feeling aroused by a piano concerto. Yet just as real, only much more real. In fact, its primary mark is a sensation that this state is more real than any other one has experienced before, for that—that that for the first time the veil had fallen and one is in touch with real reality, the hidden order of things, the X-ray texture of the world normally obscured by layers of irrelevancy. So he, yeah. So, so and so the my understanding of, of that situation is that it's the interface between the material and the spiritual. That 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 as 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 spiritual beings, we have been our attention has been absorbed in the external world. And so it's, it's I, I, would, I would give you a, a it's kind of pretty a pretty rough analogy but but there are times like say if you if you you you're so entranced in a movie that for a moment when it's over you're almost confused about who you are and where you are and then you, then you kind of wake up oh here I am sitting you know sitting in the, in the seat or when sometimes when you wake up from a very vivid dream at first you know, the dream the dream is gone and you and you kind of where are, what are you? You're, 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 and then you come to your senses. So, by the strong aversion he was having to the world, it took him to a place where he was withdrawing his attention from it. And he was beginning to, he was in that, that, that mid place before waking up and understanding that he's, he's the soul inside the body observing things. And so, therefore, everything that he knew about himself seemed to be gone. That's why he felt that he did not exist. Although, he was experiencing non-existence. <laughs> which is you know, contradictory. Yeah. If, you, if you really don't exist, then you don't even perceive you don't exist. He would just wake up. But he had an experience of non-existence. Which means, whatever he identified with, and knew about himself, and thought about himself was gone. But he, he, he wasn't to the point where he woke up and realized himself as a, as a, he didn't have, the, he didn't have the, uh, the, the ability to go further than that. So people, are, uh, people have the experience of right on the edge of transcendence. And so every, everything that they know about the world and themselves seems to melt away. And it's a great relief, because here we feel incomplete, disconnected. There, a, all, all that stuff is gone. Mm. So, 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 Hare Krishna, thank you.